Hi, I'm Mark Rotterman. Coming up, the battle over vaccine mandates. More Democrats depart from Congress and the Supreme Court rules for the police in two excessive force cases. Next. Major funding for Front Row is provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by Patricia and Ku Yuen through the Yuen Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences in our communities. And by... Funding for the lightning round is provided by NC Realtors, Helen Lockery, Mary Louise and John Burris, Reifenberg Construction, Stephen Gleason, and Jane and Van Hip. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row. Welcome back. Joining the conversation, Mitch Kokai with the John Locke Foundation, Jay Chaudhry, the Democratic Whip in the Senate, Democratic Senator Sidney Batch, and Nelson Dower, Senior Advisor to North Carolina, Speaker of the House. Mitch, why don't we begin with the controversy, the growing controversy over vaccine mandates. With President Biden's support slipping to 37 percent in the latest Quinnipiac poll, 39 percent in the Civitas poll, throw that in as well. The last thing he needs at this point is controversy surrounding some of his major issues, one of which is this vaccine mandate. But that's exactly what's happening. We're seeing all kinds of ripple effects from governments at all levels trying to force workers to either get a vaccine or lose their jobs. You're seeing pushback from police unions and local city governments. You're talking about airline pilots, first responders, first responders, uh, military troops, staff in nursing homes. All of this is happening as well as employers of all types are struggling to get people into jobs. And so at this point, you're telling some people, well, you can't have a job if you don't get this vaccine. Uh, we haven't even touched on the fact that the vaccine mandate has some constitutional problems with it and that there would be such a major enforcement hassle if it really does go through OSHA. So there are all kinds of problems for President Biden and for other government officials who are looking at these vaccine mandates, because uh, as one uh, columnist described it, it's basically government playing a game of chicken with people about their livelihoods. Nelson, do mandates work in a free society? And the question that he just brought up, are they constitutional? Well, mandate, Americans do not like mandates. Now, first and foremost, everyone needs to get vaccinated. I would certainly encourage that. But uh, you can go back and look at the uh, jobs numbers in August. We actually had a record 3% of the workforce, 4.3 million people left the workforce, quit in, in August. And a large share of that was because they didn't want to deal with, with vaccine mandates. Now, the U.S. Supreme Court on three occasions, including one this week with the state of Maine, have declined to do uh, uh, issue emergency stays on vaccine mandates that states and so they're in, not weighing groups, in. They're not weighing in yet, but I think where they may well weigh in is is where Mitch is talking about, and that is where Biden is seeking to do a national mandate. Uh, he may not have the the uh, either the congressional authority to do that or the constitutional authority to do that from the national level. Jay, the president said on CNN this week that police and first responders should be fired if they don't, they don't get the vaccine. What would that do to public safety? What would that do to health care? Well, look, I, I, I think, first of all, it's important to remember that um, when we talk about 
mandates. We've actually had mandates in place for our schools for decades. I and mean, we have mandates for vaccine mandates for measles and mumps. Uh, the schools and militaries require them. So there's really no departure, I think, uh, with COVID based on what we've done here uh, for years. I think secondly, um, when you're talking about issues with first responders, I still think at the end of the day, an overwhelming majority of the American public supports mandates because they know that mandates is the best way to get well, our kids back to school. Police are already under fire. We have a lot of problems, though, don't we, Jay, in some of these big cities with crime? I mean, do we really want to fire police at this point? Well, look, I think I think we're hearing a lot of loud voices from some from some constituencies, but at the end of the day, I would argue that it is better for us to look out for the safety of a majority of Americans that include the elderly, include young children, such as the one that I have that hasn't been vaccinated yet, over a very select loud, select voice of a few that are very loud, loud minority. Sydney, do you think this is a choice for the individual and their doctor, or should it be mandated? I think that it depends on the circumstances. I think when you're forward facing, Great you're point. in the public, that you need to be in a situation where I think businesses should choose what's best for their employees. But in particular, when we're talking about forward facing individuals in the healthcare industry, also with regards to the police, and it, it's it's alarming. I mean, it's COVID is the number one killer of police officers. Over 500 officers have lost their lives in the last two years, right? So it's not as if we're just talking about a one-off. But what I do think is important is that when we're looking at what we're gonna do with regards to the mandates, we have to, of course, make sure that if you are forward facing, and you are dealing with individuals that may or may not have a choice to interact okay. with you, you're not going to be in a situation where you have made Great conversation. I want to move on to several key Democrats retired from Congress this week, Nelson. Uh, they have. The traditional canary in the coal mine, uh, which most parties look at, is are there members retiring uh, in advance of the midterm elections or, or in any election? So far, 22 members of the House have announced retirements. 11 of those are seeking further office, seven running for the United States Senate. But 11 Seven are full retirements, and of those, eight are Democrats, uh, three are Republicans, uh, several major names, including, of course, um, Representative Price. That's right, including David Price here in North Carolina. The trend is likely to build, and everyone is really waiting to see if Speaker Pelosi or Majority Leader Hoyer or Majority Whip uh, Clyburn, all three of which are over 80 years old, uh, will also retire. Now, I think they've got. Uh, some bills they want to get passed uh, first, but that would be a seismic event. Now, this is a great trend for Republican Republicans, but it is not all roses because in the Senate, five Republicans have announced their retirement, and that sets up some major battles for Senate seats, in particularly in Pennsylvania, Ohio, and here in North Carolina. Jay, your reflections on David Price's career. Well, I, you know, as we were talking, I think Congressman Price commanded enormous respect. And whether you agreed with his politics or not, I think he was uh, studious, quiet, thoughtful. Um, I think it was principled and also a political scientist who went to Washington, D.C. He actually wrote a book about it, but uh, he will be someone who will be deeply missed and I think represented uh, the triangle ably. You know, we had him on front row about three or four times. I didn't always agree with him, but I thought he was well studied and he was an honest broker. Way in here, Sydney. Yeah, I think that we, you know, it shouldn't be surprising and I hate to be the master of the audience, but, you know, he's long in the tooth as are many of the other people that are actually retiring at this point. And when you have 535 people in Congress, I think that there's much to, you know, we're making much to do about nothing because- So you're for generational change. 
Well, I just think that at some point he should be able to enjoy his retirement, and he could have done that at 65, or he could do it at 81. A lot of the members that are actually retiring are past 60, and so, and one of them in particular was stating that he thought that it was time to go ahead and hand the gavel over. At the end of the day, I mean, he has had an illustrious career. We can thank him for RTP and all the investments that we've had in the way that we actually have a huge biotech industry because of him, but, it, but I think that we are making much to do about nothing, because at the end of the day, Republicans are also retiring, and it's not surprising when you have 535 I with that Mitch because what I think is I think this is symptomatic that they're kind of looking at the tea leaves and some of them Democrats are getting out because they think there's going to be a wave in 2022. The New York Times seems to think so. They had a report that basically said that uh, the retirements of David Price, the budget committee chairman from Kentucky, the another colleague from Pennsylvania was a sign of fading hopes for the Democrats to maintain control of Congress, uh, the House of Representatives after the election. Uh, interestingly enough, this Times article interviewed all three of the, the people I just mentioned, including Price, and some of the things that they mentioned about why they're concerned about the future of Congress. Donald Trump's continued uh, dominance of the Republican Party agenda, that shouldn't surprise you, but also concerns about balkanization of their own party, moderates versus the, the folks who like to spend a lot versus the, as, as some have described it, the, the, the crazy wing of the party. So uh, can, can the Democrats avoid some of the splintering that we have seen in both parties over the years? Well, the party in power, Jay, usually takes a hit in the uh, off-year elections. Plus, uh, I noticed that uh, Biden in several polls is about 27 percent with independence. I mean, look, I mean, I think that's the conventional wisdom, certainly when we as Democrats uh, tried to push the same narrative when Republicans are retiring, but there is a presidential penalty during the midterms. But I mean, I agree with Sidney. I mean, I, I think, okay. I mean, certainly with David Price's seat, I mean, he'll be replaced by a Democrat. It may be too early to tell right now. Okay, I'm coming right back to you. Talked about the Supreme Court races and excessive uh, Supreme Court uh, rulings in excessive forks cases. Yeah, so this uh, this Monday, in two unsigned opinions from the United States Supreme Court, they ruled in favor of police officers seeking qualified immunity from allegations of excessive forces. Uh, in both cases, the Supreme Court actually overturned lower court cases that had ruled against those police officers. Uh, qualified immunity, as you may know, is a legal doctrine that's developed by the courts that essentially shields law enforcement officers uh, from liability for constitutional violations that can include excessive forces. Uh, there's been a big movement, actually, by both with uh, progressive and conservatives do away with the qualified immunity doctrine, and we've seen additional scrutiny of the doctrine based after the George Floyd uh, murder that took place. But uh, supporters of the doctrine said that uh, that say that qualified immunity is needed uh, to protect police officers from frivolous lawsuits. What is interesting about this unsigned opinion is that Clarence Thomas and Sonia Sotomayor, the most conservative, most liberal member of the court, actually did not author a dissent opinion, so there was agreement actually on these um, two cases. Mitch, if they do, if people do have agreements with the police, they can sue the city or the police department though, right? They can. The interesting thing to me about this debate is that qualified immunity and support for it really isn't a left-right Republican versus Democrat issue. On the right, there is a healthy debate about whether qualified immunity makes sense. Libertarians tend to be very much against qualified immunity. Basically, we haven't discussed it yet, but what it says is you can't sue an officer for something unless there has been basically proof that someone else did the exact same thing. And so if, if their circumstances are slightly different in one case than another, then qualified immunity uh, prevents you be, from being sued on that issue. Libertarians are very much against it, but uh, a lot of conservatives, especially law and order type conservatives, think it's a good thing. What would that do, Nelson, to retention, to recruitment? 
It would be horrendous. I mean, qualified immunity is absolutely essential. It's not just police officers. It's correctional officers, nurses, doctors, EMTs, um, park rangers, public servants have to be able to operate under what's called the color of law. Otherwise, who's going to risk their lives, their livelihoods, their families if they can't rely on the law? You know, it's one thing to be sitting around working in an office. Uh, it's another thing to be on the street, 3 a.m., answering a domestic violence call with a guy who's wielding a chainsaw, which is some of the facts in, in one of these cases. So the Supreme Court has established very clear precedents on qualified immunity. The, it's the government's immunity. So it's not the public servant's immunity. If they violate the law, they lose it, just like Derek Chauvin did. No one has blanket protection from criminal or civil action if they break the law or if they violate someone's civil rights. Senator, your take? I think that one of the important parts is, is that obviously the Supreme Court has ruled, but we have also seen states like North Carolina actually issue and create and pass law like SB 300, which deals with some of these issues. So if the issue is excessive force, you're not dealing with government immunity, but now in SB 300, we actually have pr procedures now in place that were not there before, which then mandate a law enforcement officer to intervene when they see another law enforcement officer using excessive force. And then they have to report it three day, within three days, 72 hours, to their superior officer. So we can can still address the issue of excessive force and get bad police out of policing, of which is a very small percent of the individuals in law enforcement, still protect them, they have governmental immunity, but we as the state have actually sat there and figured out other smarter ways in order to make sure that we're cleaning up policing and making sure that they're being held accountable and that bad actors are being removed from the force. Jay, wrap this up in about 40 seconds, my friend. Well, I, I mean, I think that uh, Sydney talked about one of the big issues I think is, is going forward on whether there's qualified immunity or not, but certainly one thing we're seeing is that we're seeing states taking the lead, particularly in a bipartisan effort. We've done this in the North Carolina General Assembly to focus on other issues, including excess of force and the duty to intervene, which has agreement by both Republicans and Democrats and the law enforcement community. Okay, I want to talk about the General Assembly. Sydney, what's up? Yeah, what is up? Two major things, redistricting and then, of course, the budget. Right now, we have seen that the maps have actually dropped. They're online. Everybody can see it. Public comment will occur, uh, I think, online and also in person next week based on the schedule. Next couple of weeks, we'll see a lot of legislators who are going to be worried because if the courts don't intervene and say that you don't have to actually live where you're supposed to as your residency by number 5th, a lot of uh, legislators who are double-bunked are going to have to make some hard decisions that if they want to stay in the legislature, they're going to have to move and move pretty quickly without knowing what those maps are actually going to be. Um, so that we should certainly watch out on that. And then the, uh, the governor and with budgeting, um, the senior le or leadership of the General Assembly went ahead and, of course, gave their budget to the governor. He has already volleyed back a response. They're going back and forth with regards to counteroffers. I think there's a huge appetite for making sure that we actually get a budget this time. We haven't had one in several years. We've had more money than we ever have. So I think that there is an appetite from everyone to get that done. Um, what is going to be interesting is uh, whether or not Leandro is going to be fully funded and whether or not, obviously, Judge Lee is going to be in a position in which he says, and he said, I'm going to give a couple of weeks to the General Assembly to fully fund Leandro before I do something. I think that we are coming into a situation in which it will not be fully funded, and then we are going to be in a further litigation about whether or not some people at the General Assembly don't think that the judge has any authority to tell the General Assembly what to do with regards to its budget. Jay, is Medicaid expansion... Uh is that the big ticket item for the governor? Is that a deal breaker if he doesn't get something? 
Well, I think it is. Uh, Not that I put you on the spot. No, I, I mean, I'm, I, 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 I think I think if you ask any Democrat um, about this question, I mean, I think they would say that Medicaid expansion is is on the table. I think the real question is whether the Senate Republicans and the Senate House leaders uh, agree to that. Um, and if they don't, I think the real question is because there seems to be a real appetite to push for corporate tax cuts and personal income tax cuts, how do you make up for $50 billion of lost revenue? And if so, if Medicaid expansion is not on the table, how do you make that up? Do you, do you actually fully fund Leandro um, and, and public education, which is also a big area of disagreement? Nelson? Well, I'm going to talk about the Leandro judge because it is truly theater of the absurd uh, to think that one judge could order the General Assembly to appropriate $1.7 billion, not to, not to mention the $5.6 billion he's saying that we have to appropriate. It violates the state constitution, separation of powers. And if you follow the logic, state courts could use any constitutional claim to compel both the General Assembly to pass a bill and a governor to sign a bill. Uh, so it, it, is, it, it's, it just simply is turning basic legal principles on their head. And the truth is that school children in North Carolina uh, lost most of their learning over this past year because they were forced out of school. So who's actually going to pay the cost for that? And in many cases, those were local school systems. So they need to be thinking about this uh, as well in terms of who's going to uh, pay for the learning loss that's been out there, some of it that was self-imposed, unfortunately. Okay, what about no patient left alone? That was signed into law, wasn't it? It was signed into law, and this is a, a sign that some things can get done on a bipartisan basis. But the, the one issue I want to mention that kind of shows where things stand is that the House finalized a bill that would scale back the governor's powers during a time of emergency. But to show you where things stand and how everyone knows uh, what the numbers are, the bill went through the House and had no debate. The sponsor said, I think this is a good bill. They voted on it. Everyone knew Governor Cooper's going to veto the bill and there aren't going to be the votes to override the veto. They didn't need to spend two hours to, d to debate something that could take two minutes. Okay, Nelson, you're on the spot. Budget next week. Do we have a deal? We will continue to work on that issue. I think all of the, you know, the, the, and, and I think the key part is that uh, the speaker, the pro tem, the governor, have all sat down. They're, they're all in the process of talking it through. Everybody knows the pieces uh, that are that are on the on the table, and I think that they will, in fairly short order, work through a successful conclusion. Okay, let's go to the most underreported story of the week, Mitch. This is kind of interesting. People who are confined in North Carolina's 55 prisons are no longer going to get cards photos or handwritten letters anymore. Instead, they're going to get a printout of, of a digital scan. This was something the Department of Public Safety started as a pilot pro, uh, project in four women's prisons, and they found that after the pilot had started, there was a 50 percent drop in infractions related to drugs. And so now this is being expanded to all the prisons that have men as well. That's uh, a, a rule change that went to effect. They have if mailroom staffers for the prisons have found something like 500 drug related offenses over the course of a year. So a change like this may have a difference. Of course, some critics are saying, look, people who are in prison should be able to get handwritten notes from their family. Prisons are still having our prison system still having a problem of retaining and, and hiring guards, correct? Yeah, that's certainly true. And that's one of the things that if you know, goes back to our earlier discussion about vaccine mandates. Some people might just say, yeah, it's a tough job. I don't want it anyway. I'm going to sign off. 
Jay? Uh, most underreported news of the week for me was a floor speech that United States Senator Angus uh, King from Maine, who is not a Democrat, not a Republican, but an independent, uh, gave on the floor this week about how our democracy is, is at risk. And he pointed out two things that are going on in our country right now. One is the uh, really the breakdown and the loss of trust that we have in our political system. And secondly, is really the part, overly partisan attempts to use the loss of that trust system as a pretext to change the results of future elections. He goes on to identify what could happen in 2024 and talks about a scenario that could happen here in North Carolina, which is where in a swing state they could over, override the election results by the by a partisan legislature deciding to set its own. Is that realistic that could happen here? Well, I mean, it's certainly been bandied around in Pennsylvania and Arizona. I hope it never happens, but it's something that I think a lot of reporters are, are writing about, and I think there's a real concern. I mean, what I lo love about King's speech is that he said that we will be left with a downward okay. spiral toward a hollow shell of democracy. Underreported? So most people know that October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. I'd be remiss without telling all of you and everyone that's listening to get the women in their lives, remind them to get their, of course, mammograms. But what was underreported is that the governor this um, month actually declared for the first time and proclaimed that it, October is also Infant Loss, SIDS, um, and, and Pregnancy Loss Awareness Month. A million pregnancies end in infant loss, stillbirth, and also miscarriage every single year in um, the United States. And in particular, in North Carolina, 800 stillbirths. So this, uh, and so that's 800 families in North Carolina and all of it, how the ripple effects of how they cannot bring a baby home to the hospital. Um, and so one of the things that happened this week is that advocates came, had a press conference and talked about some of the changes that we can make within the legislature um, to make sure that we actually, no family has to suffer through that. One of them being Medicaid expansion in large part because okay. we're in a situation where rural hospitals are closing and Thanks people can't Thanks for bringing that to our attention. Nelson. Uh, Chinese, uh, their successful hypersonic missile test, that's reported. What's underreported is the purpose of Russia and China's hypersonic development program, which is to push NATO back um, in Europe and also to push the United States back in the South China Sea and the Eastern Pacific by threatening our carrier groups. Uh, the missiles are designed as a strategic first strike weapon with really no effective defense right now. The U.S. is rapidly working on developing its own long-range missiles, traveling at Mach 20, uh, and that's the speed of an IBM, only these are far, far, far more maneuverable. Um, what we're looking at is energy weapons and lasers to tr attempt to create a defense. Right. Uh, for these uh, hypersonic missiles and a new $3 billion contract was just signed recently for a space-based missile tracking system. It's really the beginning of a new arms race uh, with no treaty limitations right now. Okay, let's go to the lightning round. Who's up and who's down this week, Mitch? My what's up is digital literacy, which talks about using information and communication technologies to, to deal with the world around us. One of the few things we've learned about the budget is that uh, Governor Cooper wanted more money for this, and apparently the negotiators have said, yeah, okay, we're willing to go along with you on that. My who's down, North Carolina school boards. I referenced very briefly the Civitas poll earlier. The latest Civitas poll said that 52% of likely voters give school boards a D or an F for their handling of politics in the classroom. Just 11% would give them an A or B, 47% would give them a D or F for dealing of ma dealing with masks and COVID vaccines. 
Jay, who's up and who's down this week, please? All right, so who's up is the uh, North Carolina State Fair. We're going into the second and last weekend. Uh, as we know, the State Fair closed for the first time since World War II. We're going in, and, and now it's back. So the kids and our family are super excited to go back. There's a chance to eat Quickly. fried everything. Grab a turkey leg. Okay. Uh, yep. And uh, who's down is coronavirus. So nationwide, the rates have dropped 22%. And even though we're expecting an increase in holiday travel, um, we, we know that the, the experts are expecting the virus to continue to lose ground. Sydney. Uh, my up is vaccinations in North Carolina. Two-thirds of all North Carolinians are vaccinated now, which is uh, great, fully vaccinated. And my down are the number of truck drivers. We actually have about 80,000 truck drivers that we need in order to keep the supply chain going. Well, a lot of truck drivers can't drive in California, I see. They can't get to the ports. Nelson. Uh, who's up? Colin Powell, who passed away this week, was an American hero. Everyone should study the Powell Doctrine for how to fight a successful war in Panama, first Gulf War. Powell used clear objectives, overwhelming force, combined arms. Powell always protected his troops. He got the job done, and he got out of country. He was appointed by Ronald Reagan, National Security Advisor. He was another great appointment by Reagan. Uh, who's down? Terry McAuliffe. Uh, the Democrat candidate for governor of Virginia is now tied in uh, two most recent polls with Republican Glenn Youngkin. And unlike the California recall election, this race is about the current president's uh, sinking popularity. Also, what you're seeing is a strong shift of independent voters to the right, and that's also influencing these retirements in Congress and what you're likely to see in 2022, if that trend continues. We're going to cover that race uh, after the uh, results are in, but I think McAuliffe's going to lose. Okay, headline next week. Democratic lawyers ready to pounce as soon as the new districts are put in place. Headline next week, Jay. Uh, Republicans hold public comments for congressional and state legislative maps, voting right advocates, and Democrats claim gerrymandered districts. So it goes to court, right? <laughs> and then those, that would be those, that those headline. stories will be next to each other. <laughs> right. Sydney, headline next week. Also, redistricting winds down and we finally see the maps. Headline next week. Well, I'm going to be the optimist. State budget agreement is reached. I, I, if I say that every week, one week, it'll be true. <laughs> <laughs> he knows more than the rest of us you know. at this table, so... On That's your great. up about Powell, he, he was truly an American success story. He was. He came from nothing. He was, in many respects, self-taught. It, it's the value of family, morals, his religious belief, and he carried all of his values and his just tremendous character all through his life, and he was a tremendous intellectual. Okay, we, we got a roll. Great conversation. That's it for us. Thanks for watching. Hope to see you next week on Front Row. Have a great weekend. Major funding for Front Row is provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by Patricia and Ku Yuen through the Yuen Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences in our communities. And by... Funding for the Lightning Round is provided by NC Realtors, Helen Lockery, Mary Louise and John Burris, Reifenberg Construction, Stephen Gleason, and Jane and Van Hip. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row.